0: Children could have a bad day and the data reflects that. It could be they're dealing with other environmental things and data reflects that. But do we really ask them what they need? And if they're comfortable around you, they will tell you exactly what they need.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited about the conversations that we get to have with really, really incredible educators. And today is uh, actually a special treat because joining us today is probably one of the most amazing educators I've had the chance to meet and work with um, over the years. Um, joining us today is Carla Neely, who is currently a fifth and sixth grade science and computer science teacher at the Warner's Girls Leadership Academy for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District in Cleveland, Ohio. But for the last, uh, oh, I don't know, six months or so, Carla has been on another part of her journey um, as a teacher, doing really, really incredible things tied to the fact that she is, in fact, one of the coolest teachers ever because um, she has, in 2022, she was named the Ohio District 11 Teacher of the Year. She became a finalist for Ohio Teacher of the Year. Um, She has won more accolades and awards um, over the last few years in her work, specifically tied to girls and STEM and underrepresented minorities, getting in to the places where we need them to be so desperately. She's an advocate for students, and because of her advocacy, um, she was selected uh, to be a member of the 2022-23 Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellows Cohort, and so she spent the last few months in Washington, D.C. So, Carla, welcome to the program. Thank you. I didn't embarrass you at all in all of that, did I? No. <laughs> <laughs> so just no. for full full context um for our listeners, um so I know Carla because um few years ago, and I don't even remember when, it's been a few years back, Carla turned up in one of the workshops that PASS Foundation had been doing around problem-based and STEM instruction and all the different sorts of things that we've been doing in Ohio in STEM. And it became readily apparent within moments, actually, that Carla was one of those teachers that is so dedicated and so mindful, so passionate about the work that she does, um, and that she wants to be one of those folks that you just sort of carry with you and all the work that you do. And so every time we turn around, Here is Carla again, turning up in our ecosystem, and we're super thrilled with that. So, Carla, I want to talk today about the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellows cohort. And I want to talk about the journey... For amazing teachers to find themselves with these kinds of opportunities because they're rare and yet they're accessible if you know sort of how to get there and what does that all mean. So let's start with the sort of the highest level. Uh, I want to start with what what you're passionate about as
0: an educator. Ooh, uh, I'm passionate about more so um, making opportunities equitable for underrepresented students. Um. The marginalized students, because I was a marginalized student, and I know the the um, importance of having that support and um, good teaching with for you, so that you can make it, you know, in society. So that is my passion: doing what I need to do and advocating strongly about the importance of marginalized students receiving equitable opportunities in education in general and specifically for the STEM um arena because that's that's what I am a STEM instructor. Right
1: right. Yeah, as a science and computer science and and, yes. and a math aficionado, that that's the space that you love.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So so with that in mind, and honestly, the work that Carla has been doing in her school in Cleveland over the years, is just, it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, we've seen some quotes over the years um, from the students that Carla's interacted with. Yeah. And, and, you know, your girls, they love you dearly. Um, they so do. that part's, Yes, they do. And you <laughs> love them back. I know it's really clear. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the journey around becoming a master teacher and a distinguished teacher. And, you know, oftentimes teachers Are afraid to apply for these things, these opportunities, and yet, despite all of that fear, and I think most teachers who go through and and, and actually go through the journey and proceed with these things, it's it's an interesting component. But you know, folks are always really curious. Why did you choose to? Do it. I mean, you have to put yourself out there when you do those kinds of things. But there's there's a there's a back end opportunity tied to that. Why why did you choose to run down the road of teacher of the year, the NSTA components, the various and sundry pieces
0: that you've plugged into? Oh, wow. Well, actually, I never sought out for any of it. I know. <laughs> um, I'm just teaching, doing my job, you know, um, and going home and I'm reflecting and then trying to be better every day that I'm in the classroom. So um, I never thought I would be any type of teacher of the year because a lot of times the marginalized school districts don't receive that type of positive press. So I was prepared for that to never reach that far. So then I got recommended. Um, I said, okay, I just filled out the application. I didn't think anything of it. And then I became the district 11 teacher of the year. And I'm like, okay, fine. And then I became a finalist. And then Kurt, who's our national teacher of the year, um, when he won for state, I said, OK, I could take a rest. I could just take <laughs> a break and I can breathe a little bit. And so that didn't happen. So then I had it's funny how the journey prepared me to be an Einstein fellow. So then um, I was recommended for the Computer Science Teacher Association's um, equity program, which that's my area. I love to focus on equity. I was with that. Um, For a year, and then all of a sudden, I remember applying for the Einstein Fellowship Program, but I stopped because the process is so long. As far as the application, it's very extensive. It's it's arduous. Yes, it is extensive. It's extensive. It's very extensive. But those of you who are interested, if you want to do it, I recommend. But the application process is extensive, and so I took a break from the application. I forgot all about it, and then my superintendent, um, Mr. Eric Gordon, sent me an email, and he said, Carl, I forgot to send in your recommendation. Can you send me the link again? And I had forgotten all about it. And so I said, oh... I said, this means I got to finish the application. It
1: does. When your superintendent, it's, right, reaches yes. out and I'm says, like, I have oh, to by the way, I need yes. to finish something for you. You're like, he oh, well, then I need to yes. finish he for me, me for, too, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> I'm like, oh, I need to finish the application. So I sent her the link. I finished the application, which is a process. It's long. Um, you need supports. It's basically an application where you are showing your best to you. You're advertising yourself in the STEM genre. That's what you're doing. And so I did that. And then I received a letter months later, in about February, that I was a semifinalist. And I was going to start the interview process. And I said, okay, this would be nice. And then months later, I received the, because it's a process, I received an email on who would be interested in me. And Then when I chose Capitol Hill, that was another process because then I had to interview um, with senators and House of Representative leaders, and their job was to convince me that I should work for them. Yeah.
1: What what, what what a lovely place to be, Carla. Let's just just celebrate that.
0: (laughs) Yes. So these are people I see on TV working Mm -hmm. for our freedoms, and they have to convince me why i should be with them and so mm-hmm. make the long story short i ended up choosing um senator jackie rosen who mm-hmm. represents nevada she is like the mecca of females in computer science and stem mm-hmm. when you look at mm-hmm. her background and she's an advocate for pushing more equitable stem opportunities at the federal level for a marginalized community of people and it was just a perfect match i love working there and it's going by so fast
1: it is. it is you you finish all of that journey in July. um, so you know, about halfway through at this point. And the project that you're working for, uh, working on, we're gonna get to that in just a minute because you're doing some really, specific stuff with a senator. But I guess the thing that um, I, I'm certain that, you know, our teachers that are out there listening to this and thinking, oh, I just can't even imagine that I would do that, or, or some of them listening to that, oh, that is the coolest thing. So as a teacher, Carla, when you walk away from this experience, knowing you still have six months left for it, what have you learned? I mean, I, I know it's a lot, but what 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 in particular goes back into the classroom with you that is that meaningful piece. Peace. You know, when you reflect back, I'm really glad I did this. What's the thing that you take back to those girls you love so much?
0: Um, teaching them about advocacy mm-hmm. um, and the importance of being an advocate for someone. Where well, we all have a voice, but unfortunately, certain communities people don't listen to their voice. So the importance of you being a voice. I always say a voice for the voiceless, which no one is voiceless, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. a voice for those people. Who aren't speaking loud enough, yeah. and the importance of that, and that's what I'm learning through this this process. And when I go back to teach my students the importance of using their voice to advocate for their own learning, yeah, yeah, really expressing so, what they need,
1: and and that that is a that is a very powerful skill. And the interesting thing that I think, in particular, is that. When, when kids embrace that skill, they, they have this natural want to, to advocate mm-hmm. for themselves, right? And, right? and unfortunately, circumstances, school systems, we often kind of, I wouldn't say that we beat it out of kids, but we, we don't encourage a lot of kids to embrace that component of who they are. And so it just sort of gets right. pushed to the side. Right. Kids, kids, you know, innately have the want and the will for that component, right? So, uh, to me, it seems magical that you get to bring that experience and bring it back to those kids, to those girls, and to help them own that space. Right. So, how does that then translate into the sort of day-to-day experience that you imagine having moving forward in a classroom?
0: Oh wow. You know, I was always told when I took on the fellowship, they told us this is in all this is in July mm-hmm. when I was in orientation. They said, think about what you want to do in January. And this is me, mm-hmm. when the program is over. Start thinking about in January how you want to use your skills. And I'm thinking I have time and I just blinked and it's January. Yeah. Where I have to really start thinking. And I think it's really important. One of the things I want to do is, in addition to teaching students how to advocate for themselves, teaching them the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes our students, because of their backgrounds, they're advocating for themselves, but it comes out wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say wrong, but the way teachers visualize how it should be worded. Sometimes it can sound offensive and not too clean, Mm -hmm. but really teaching them how to say I don't know how to read without feeling that they're going to be judged because as a classroom teacher, we really don't know what they need. Yes, we look at data. Data is only a little piece of it because children could have a bad day and the data reflects that. It could be they're dealing with other environmental things and data reflects that. But do we really ask them what they need? And if they're comfortable around you, they will tell you exactly what they need. yeah. Yeah,
1: they will. Children are remarkable if you give them the space,
0: right? And you make it safe for them, right? Right. And Um, that's the key, to give them that space.
1: Yeah, 100%. And it's also part of the key is the relationship too, right? Right. kids. That's important. They they understand when the adults in their world really mean what they say or what they care about. Um, kids right. kids are super, super smart, you know, no matter what they're struggling with, you know, a, a base level kids, kids get it. They, they understand right. when the adults are, you know, just like BSing them or, or patting they them on do. the head or all those things. <laughs> oh yeah, man, kids, kids get they it. Do. We should pay more attention as adults. Right. Yeah, uh, to yeah. translate I tell them. a lot of
0: people that I tell a lot of people that mm-hmm. when we were, I was talking to some people in the office, the interns, and I said, if you want to look at how to be honest, listen to how honest kids are how unapologetic they are with their honesty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And something something happens along the way where adults forget how to be that, where it's innocent, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm.
1: I think adults lose the understanding that transparency can be one of those core values of who we are, right? And it doesn't have to be right. a label that we stick on ourselves. It's just the way that we naturally be. But you're right. Somewhere along the way, we lose that.
0: Right. So now it's like I was telling my mom, I'm like, I really miss the kids. Yeah. Like being there because we were talking about what I want to do when this journey is over. Because she thinks her, my father and my siblings, they think I belong in the classroom. That's what I was designed to do, to be in the classroom with those community kids. And I'm like, yes, I do miss them. But what else can I do with that? How else can I service them at a more higher level?
1: Exactly. And I suspect so many things. So let's dig into that just a little bit then, right? Because that's the perfect segue. So share with us sort of the the next six months, the nuts and bolts of the project that you're working on has to deal um, with legislation, um, you know, and the advocacy of creating more opportunities within STEM via legislation. So share with us a little bit about this sort of the, you know, I realize there's a lot of work to be done, but, but share with us a little bit about the way you're thinking about this project.
0: Okay. So my job, I want to go back a little bit. So with the fellowship, there's 15 of us, five of us are on Capitol Hill. I'm the only one who's on the Senate and, and there's four with the house of representatives. Our job is to help our leaders create STEM legislation. That's our job. And then you also have other people who actually work organizations where they deal with curriculum, be it NASA, the Library of Congress, uh, NSF, National Science Foundation, for those who may not know, um, the Geological Association, they deal with curriculum. So the five of us, we deal with the actual legislation, creating the legislation. And I'm learning the process of Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. that it just starts with an idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, and And it's a lot of work and it's many, many, many steps.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work and a lot of people don't understand that it may not happen in a year. It might take two years, it might take three, depending on the flow of everything. But what I'm learning from that is the importance of voice. With teachers, the importance of your voice to tell your leaders that this is not working, that these things that you voted for for your community of students is not working. And it's so important for teachers to say that. And that is the key, even for parents to let the leaders that have been voted in hear it's not working and why you feel it's not working. And since we are so data driven now, bringing that data to show that it is not working. Right. And right. I think that is so important. Mm hmm.
1: And and I know um Carla that there this is a work in progress and so it's not like you can sort of tell us about the details of the legislation right. but mm-hmm. but I have you know, my own work um, in legislation, you know, at, at every sort of point along the way, there's sort of some core values that are that, that are at the heart of what the legislation, once it's finally crafted and it's amended a million times along the way, right? But so, so what are the core values of the legislation that you're
0: working on? Okay, the core value of my legislation is it deals with STEM, because that's her area with her education portfolio. Um, and it specifically has to deal with girls of color and underrepresented communities in STEM. But the larger focus is of girls of color. So with Nevada, it's majority Hispanic, Latino, Latina community. And then you have African American. But what people don't understand is, even though I'm looking at Nevada, when Senator Rosen brings forth legislation and it passes bipartisan that helps nationally and that's the part you know I want people to to understand so even though I'm Ohio I'm also explaining how it's looking in Ohio and what needs to change there when we're looking at legislation so all my focus is on right now making it more equi- creating legislation that makes it more equitable for girls of color and we're looking at computer science which is big as far as equity, computer science and engineering, and general science. That can also take on health, because we're looking at how health and housing has an effect on learning. So it, it you can look at so many false facets of that, which we're looking at now. Yeah.
1: What What is? Because I know that people are listening to this and they're they're thinking uh-huh. the same thing I'm thinking. It's like okay, right. that's awesome. We're 100 behind it. We need that. But, but how do you do that through legislation? So in other words, what does the, ultimately, again, we have to be vague because there's so much work right, that needs right, right. to be done. Mm-hmm. But, but ultimately, help, help our listeners who, who are fellow teachers understand right. that if this legislation moves forward and gets all the way through, so how exactly will federal legislation provide that opportunity and that equity for this broad swath of participants, how how can legislation itself actually bring about equity in this space?
0: I always tell people federal is the general umbrella. It's the big umbrella. And then it starts getting more specific the lower you go. So, so the federal makes the legislation, the funding, so forth and so forth. Then when we go to the state level, it becomes more specific. And that's where I think more of our voices need to be heard with the state to hold them more accountable to follow the legislation that the Senate and the House has set forth.
1: So ultimately then, the federal component creates the roadmap by which yes, other things the become possibility. Yes, absolutely,
0: right? absolutely. And teachers can say that I've learned, okay, we have this law for girls of color in STEM. Why aren't I seeing this, this, and this at the state level, even at the district level, when we know there's this legislation that says these things need to be happening, this amount of funding needs to be there, and so forth and so forth. It's all about holding people you know, accountable. And all my legislation, which I love, is focusing on making it more equitable for the girls, particularly of girls of color, because the data, when we're looking at girls of marginalized communities, in STEM, it, the percentages are really scary.
1: They are. They are. It's, and, you it's know, we've, really we've been, scary. We've been at this this fight for well over a decade, right? Yeah, it's and, scary. And we haven't moved that needle that much.
0: By just 1%. Yeah. Um, which is, when I was working on a presentation, I looked and I said, it's only grown 1% mm-hmm. in 20 years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is scary. It and, is. And sad, uh, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Because it's they've been given more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so we need to look at why aren't they taking these opportunities?
1: And what did you find with that, Carla? Because I know you've been digging in that space Um, a lot. So what have
0: you identified? It has to deal a lot with representation. Yeah, They're not seeing themselves. Mm -hmm. Every way they identify, they're not seeing themselves. They're not feeling that they can do this. For example, my first year at my school, I was a black STEM teacher, but if my girls aren't feeling and they're black mm-hmm. that they can do this, that narrative, that that representation doesn't matter. It's important, but that's a piece of it. That's the easy piece. That's the easy solution. But then getting the students to feel that they are worthy of being in this space, that's the hard part, and that's where it comes with looking at federal. What are they presenting at the legislative area to make sure? that they are feeling that they are worthy of being in this space. And, you know, that's, that's the important part. It is. Is that, and also looking at even a lot of administrators don't think that is important. It is really important for students to have teachers who look like them because I was just reading something recently for a presentation I have to take care of at the Senate in next year. They say that when a child has at least one teacher of the same race, their graduation rate increases by forty-five percent. Just one, just one. Then, when we look at them graduating from college, a four-year, four or five-year, the percentages of them graduating successfully increases by twenty-five. Just having that one teacher who looks like them—that one. So imagine what the percentages can look like if they had more than one. The same thing in the sciences. And that's what we really need to work on. That's what I'm passionate about working on and, you know, with the legislation, you know, in the Senate. So that's my area Mm -hmm. that I deal with. Mm -hmm.
1: That will make such a difference for so many kids. So it's, right, yeah, super special. Okay, so, you know, as we sort of think about the experience that you've had and knowing that you've still got about six months, um, left in this work and knowing that you ultimately then have to wrestle with, and, and I, and I, I want to touch on this piece a little bit because I always, always, always encourage great teachers to go off and do these amazing things. And I get pushback from administrators for encouraging these these activities in part because, and I understand this, right? So administrators don't, on some levels, are cautious about their teachers going off and doing these incredible experiences like you've mm. had because we know those experiences are going to be powerful for you as the right. educator. And everybody worries about whether or not you're going to come back or what might the contribution be. And I think that every great teacher who has these incredible experiences has to wrestle with these very things because as you pointed out, right, you know, it may be that I come back and, and use that experience to, for great things in the very same classroom that I left, but maybe there's an opportunity for me to do even more with this. Right. Right. And, and not, this is not about putting you on the spot because that's not, but how, how as an educator who's passionate about the work that you do, I I can imagine the folks that are listening thinking, okay, how do you wrestle with all of the potential opportunities that honestly are going to come your way because of the experience that you've had? And not that they're about the decision that you make, but how do you even sort of start to parcel out what these things mean to you as an educator at heart?
0: I I, I always say, if a good teacher teacher is given an opportunity beyond the classroom the administrator is uncomfortable with what that result would be at the end. Then the question is why was it an easy decision for that teacher to leave? Mm. Why was it so easy? Yeah, for that teacher to say, Okay, I like this, this opportunity, I'm leaving the classroom. Why was it so easy? First of all, um, second of all, you want Teachers stay great when the administrator allows them time for growth. So whatever, everything that I'm learning in D.C., I bring back to Cleveland. That's helping the district grow as well, just not myself. And it's, it's nice to, you know, be able to work at a higher level and just to get that break and step back and really breathe and look at what are some areas that I can still grow in as a professional. Because even though I'm working um, in the Senate office, there is also a piece within my program where I have my own personalized professional development, which I love because most teachers are told where to go for professional development. I get the opportunity to develop my own, which is a challenge because I've never been asked to develop my own stuff. So me looking at what I want to do as far as professional development. So I have that piece which I'm enjoying as well. And that also, even with all my accolades, still allows me to grow as a professional, allows my school to grow as a school and my district to grow as a district because teaching changes every second of the hour. It's never the same. Things change all of the time. So it's that piece. So I always say, when a teacher has said that is it, once they've been exposed to other things within education, the question is, why was it that easy? That's the concern. Why is it that easy? Like even with me, I'm trying to look at, because I love the kids, trying to look at what can I do while I'm still servicing them? I don't want to necessarily be away from them, but how can I still service them? Which does, if that means I need to be in a classroom, that's fine. If that means I need to step out, that's fine. But where else can I go where I can still make sure they, they are receiving what they need. But that's a hard. It's
1: hard. It is hard. But, you know, Carla, I give you great accolades for the fact that you've stood back and thought about that in that way. And I appreciate the way you sort of crafted the, that whole sort of piece of this conversation because it's really important. And I think oftentimes it's a conversation that we avoid, right? That we avoid. Right. And one of the things that I've been saying for for years is... The teaching profession is somewhat unique if you think about the sort of modern 21st century thinking of work, right? Because there are very few professions that exist, I would argue, in the world of today um, that you enter at five years old and you stay until you retire. Yes. (laughs) But teaching, teaching for many, many people, not all, really sort of follows that type of journey, right? You know, mm-hmm. you you loved learning as a kid, you 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 found your your passion along the way, you probably had great teachers that inspired you, you wanted to become a teacher. Yes, right. you may have had part-time jobs or or jobs here and there, you go to college, you know, you you learn to become a teacher, you go back into the classroom. So the the scope and scale oftentimes I think of the the sort of experience of lots of teachers is very insular as a profession because of that. And so that opportunity to step out, to your point, is incredibly powerful. Because it is changing right. all the time, but you've lived in it for a really, really long time. Right. Right? Right. right. And we, 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 I think we do a disservice to the profession if we don't recognize this is a really unique characteristic and aspect
0: of this particular profession in the modern world. And I also realized I needed the break. Yeah, I didn't realize it until I started in the office because I was still adjusting from being out of the classroom, even within that first day. But I needed the break just to breathe, mm-hmm. to step back. And that's and okay sort of too. Yes, yeah, just to step yeah. back. Yeah, just to step back and have different eyes for you know for education of what I had before. It was a, it's a well needed break that that I needed. I have been going full force for 20-something years. So to be away from it for just this, these 11 months, it, it helps out a lot.
1: Yeah, I think it's very, very powerful. You will, go, you will go back in whatever capacity that happens to be and to be that much more of an amazing teacher. So that's pretty awesome. Carla, thank you so much for taking time today to have this conversation with us. And most importantly, Carla, thank you for everything that you are doing to advocate for children. It's so incredibly important and so amazingly powerful. And I cannot think of a better advocate than you.
0: So thank I'm grateful you. to you. You are welcome. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin, and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.